Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Public Domain Theater 3000, where we read public domain works because we can and no one can sue us for it. <laughs> in honor of last week's Falcon Heavy launch, today's article focuses on space exploration in the early 20th century, 1920 specifically, a time when they had little more than what we would consider toys today, but with which they had the audacity to imagine a future as bold as anything we dare imagine today. That's what we're talking about today on Dead Ideas. <laughs> Happy Valentine's, everybody. Well, kind of. I mean, it's Valentine's Day today, but what I really want to talk about is SpaceX's amazing Falcon Heavy launch last week, which was frankly the best Valentine I ever received. A Valentine to humanity, I guess you could say. We're going to be talking all about space exploration as it was perceived and imagined in the early 20th century, specifically in 1920. We've got a short little article that's going to give us some insight into that. Oh, and of course, I should also add that, as always with these Public Domain Theater 3000 episodes, I haven't read this article ahead of time. That's the whole concept, is I don't know what's coming, you don't know what's coming, we discover it together. So I know it's about, generally, space exploration and rocketry, but let's find out what it has to offer us. Let's find out what people were thinking in 1920 about space exploration. But first, what was this thing? What was the Falcon Heavy launch? So SpaceX launched on February 6, 2018, which, if you're listening on the day of release, was last week, launched the most powerful rocket since Saturn V. So it's not the most powerful rocket ever, but of course, but the thing you got to remember is, of course, that this is a private enterprise. And at this point in history that we're living in right now, space exploration is transitioning from an early government-sponsored, like, weird venture, pseudo-Cold War kind of thing that is now turning into something that you and I, as regular people, could, in the near future, realistically actually hitch a ride on. You know, we could pay for a seat, and we can go to space. I mean, this is the baby steps that get us there. It's actually looking like it's going to happen fairly soon. And what was so cool about the Falcon Heavy launch, of course, is, I mean, this wasn't the first time that SpaceX ever launched something into space. They've done it before. But in this case, it was big, for one thing. For another thing, they landed the boosters, which NASA never did, which the Russian space program never did. None of the national programs ever did that. The boosters usually would just crash, they'd be used up, and that's what made space exploration so freaking expensive. But in this case, it's a private enterprise, right? So they want to do things as cheaply as possible, make things reusable. So they actually had their boosters land, and they came down, landed side by side in unison, unprecedented. So that was really, really cool. The central booster was intended to land on a platform at sea, which is in itself really cool because basically the reason why that's important is because a sea platform can move. It can change position so that it's easier for the thing coming down from space to actually end up in the point where it's supposed to land. Unfortunately, in this case, the central booster came in too fast and crashed. Major explosion. We didn't get to see it because the cameras cut out right before, unfortunately. Could have been really cool to watch. However, SpaceX has successfully landed at sea before, so not entirely uh, a total loss. 
Beyond that, there's two other things that are even cooler, and I'm sure that you've heard about it, but I'm going to tell you anyway. So the Falcon Heavy launched Elon Musk's car, the Tesla Roadster, into space with a mannequin in a spacesuit and a sign on the dashboard that says, Don't Panic, and it's just out there in space right now, and it's playing David Bowie's Space Oddity. <laughs> and there's no sound in space, but it's just cool to know that it's doing that. But they launched it not just into any kind of orbit, but something called a trans-Mars injection. It's a heliocentric orbit, so it goes around the sun, but it kind of goes between Earth and Mars. And this is meant to be the most efficient way that you would move things between Earth and Mars if you were actually going to have some kind of like a, you know, like a trade route almost, you know, or just like a, a space superhighway between Earth and an eventual Mars colony. So it's paving the way that way and doing it extra cool with David Bowie and a Tesla Roadster. But there's also something else beyond that that they did, and this was actually secret. It was a secret payload. Inside the car, they also included two things called ARC disks. It's spelled A-R-C-H, but it's pronounced ARC. ARC disks, which are kind of like tiny CDs, sort of. They store data. But the thing about these ARC disks is they are made to last something like 14 billion years. It's claimed to be one of the longest lasting storage devices ever created. And they accomplished that by laser nanostructuring in quartz silica glass. So if aliens or future humans or whatever find this, they should know what? Well, they put Isaac Asimov's Foundation Trilogy on it. So they should know our science fiction. <laughs> you definitely, whatever else you might say about the Falcon Heavy launch, you cannot accuse Elon Musk of not having style. <laughs> he definitely has a sense of humor. So that's what's so cool about the Falcon Heavy launch. That's what we're honoring today with this unique episode of Dead Ideas, a special Valentine to humanity of sorts. So let's get to our article for today. So the article that we have is from the March 13th issue, 1920, of the Literary Digest, and it is an article entitled, Rockets to Explore Space. And we don't have an author attribution because the Literary Digest was weird that way. It would just be one of their editors that wrote this. But it's a short little article, and this is going to show us what our predecessors in 1920 were imagining in terms of space exploration. Now remember, 1920, they didn't even have the very first rocket that even attempted to go super high in the atmosphere, much less make it to space. What they had was basically the equivalent of what you and I and everybody else had when we were little kids, where you just, you, you've got this like maybe a couple of feet tall little rocket thing that you're launching in your backyard and it's got a little cartridge that's the, the power, you know, which your science teacher would have told you, hey, go play with this for a while. <laughs> that's what they had and that's what they were using to imagine something so much larger. They are imagining we're starting here with this little basically children's toy. It wasn't children doing it at the time, but we think of it as a children's toy today, right? To them, it was not a toy. To them, it was the beginning of something huge. It was the beginning of making it into space, making it to the moon, 
In fact, the article here has an illustration that shows one of these rockets going doop, 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 doop to this round circle that says moon. <laughs> they were thinking big, just like Elon Musk is thinking big, and just their imaginations were fired just like ours are fired today. So here is that article. The press notices about shooting a rocket to the moon, or perhaps even to the planet Mars, they were already thinking about Mars at the time, are imaginative flights based on the really remarkable invention by a Massachusetts scientist of a new type of repeating rocket capable of an initial speed eight times as great as any other yet devised, and of renewing the impulse as often as devised by supplementary explosions. Theoretically, these may be so arranged as to carry the rocket past the neutral point where the gravitational fields of Earth and Moon balance, in which case it would fall toward our satellite, meaning the Moon, I assume, as the inventor's plan involves the exploration of space by his rocket, which is to carry recording devices of various kinds and return to Earth with its gathered information, it is difficult to see why he should care to have his data buried on our dead celestial neighbor, says the writer of a descriptive illustrated article in Popular Mechanics. Now, that sounds totally like Elon Musk, like he's got something ready to go, right? But no, at this time, it's just these tiny little hobby rockets, right? That's what he's actually talking about, but he's thinking so much further ahead. Now they're quoting this article from Popular Mechanics. Whether or not the time will ever come when man can travel as far straight up as he may go horizontally in a day's journey is a question that has now become immaterial. All the facts a traveler in that strange direction could gather have become suddenly available. The instruments for recording these facts may be sent up to the very point where air dissolves in space. They may go even farther than that, farther than the influence of gravitation extends, if there were any way of getting them back. The instrument by which this wonder is to be accomplished is nothing more mysterious than a rocket. A rocket scientifically designed, of course, extraordinarily efficient mechanically, but still intimately related to the familiar paper cartridge that swishes its comet-like tail of sparks through the night air of Independence Day. Fireworks, right? Upon this simple mechanism, Professor Robert H. Godard of Clark College, Worcester, Massachusetts, has turned the engineering care that might be devoted to the design of a steam turbine. Working under the auspices of the Smithsonian Institution and conducting his experiments at Mount Wilson Observatory in California, he has fitted a steel combustion chamber with a mathematically computed form of discharge nozzle that has produced extraordinary results. When the powder charge is ignited, the discharge gases issue from the special nozzle at the tremendous velocity of nearly 8,000 feet a second, the highest speed ever attained by any tangible thing. With this performance goes a record regarding the rocket as a heat engine of 64% efficiency, a figure yet to be attained by any power engine. The ordinary ship rocket used for signaling discharges its gases at only 1,000 feet a second, and its efficiency is not over 2%. So in other words, this new rocket is 64% efficient, and that's over compared to 2%, so quite an improvement, right? To design so remarkable a machine is in itself a noteworthy accomplishment, but the really startling feature of the new rocket is still more ingenious. The perfected instrument will be a repeating rocket. It will contain a series of powder charges that will explode in relay, each ignited in turn just as the preceding charge is exhausted. Then the height 
which the whole machine can reach is found by simply adding the altitudes to which each charge will carry it from the point of the explosion. Oh wow, okay. Okay, okay. so the unique thing about this guy's idea, this must be the first time that anybody came up with this, that this is, this is a multi-stage rocket, right? He's got multiple cartridges, each of which, when they're spent, they, they fall away, and then the thing continues to climb, and it gets lighter and lighter as it goes. That's a multi-stage rocket. But what's so cool, oh my god, I can't I love when this happens in Public Domain Theater 3000s here, because, you know, I, I don't read these beforehand. I didn't know this was coming, but what's so cool is this is... Elon Musk's SpaceX rocket, the Falcon Heavy, is imagining this guy's idea in a new way. Because, right, the, the multi-stage thing has been done before, but this is the first time that anybody's thought, what if we took this guy's idea of those little cartridges, those little booster rockets, right, and what if we could reuse them? What if we could land them and reuse them and make the whole thing so cheap that an average person like you or like me can afford to go to space. Wow, this is... <laughs> what a coincidence to just happen to stumble upon this article right here that was the blueprint, the, the, the spitballing, the brainstorm for what made Falcon Heavy so cool. We got it right here. Oh, I love when this happens. <laughs> it just blows me away. Okay, continuing. There is no guesswork about this computation. Figuring a fixed weight of one pound for the recording instruments carried, it is calculated that an initial weight of only 3.6 pounds, including rocket shell and charges, will lift the whole equipment to a height of practically 35 miles. 5.1 pounds would carry it up over 70 miles, 6.4 pounds, 115 miles, 9.8 pounds, over 230 miles, and 12.3 pounds, nearly 438 miles. While these distances may not seem extraordinary as compared with the surface and mass of the Earth, it must be remembered that the atmosphere itself ceases to exist some 200 miles up. So in other words, the last one there, 438 miles, will more than doubly escape the atmosphere. Of course, the ocean of air has no definite surface. It merely becomes more and more attenuated until it disappears altogether in the mystery of space. It is apparent that one of the new rockets weighing less than 10 pounds with its recording equipment, will be able to explore the atmosphere to its extreme limits, while a 12-pound rocket will go far beyond, out into the ether. The 230-mile altitude is reached in less than six and one-half minutes, a speed of over 35 miles a minute. There appears no scientific reason why any definite limit should be set on the possible range of such a mechanism. So far as figures go, it is already computed that a repeating rocket with an initial weight of 1,274 pounds, would actually pass beyond the influence of Earth's gravitation, whence it would journey on by its own momentum until it came within the influence of some other body. Aimed at the dark side of the moon and provided with a heavy charge of flash powder whose explosion could be observed through powerful telescopes, it might even serve to establish Earth's first contact with its satellite. The only real value in that speculative suggestion, of course, is in emphasizing the enormous power of the relay rocket. <laughs> that's, that's the only value of getting to the moon. <laughs> that, that statement seems a little um, underweighted considering our uh, 2018 perspective, but okay. The practical and very great value of the machine lies in its ability to bring back from the upper atmosphere all the information that science may desire of that region. Accurate measurements of temperature, electrical conditions, relative density, and chemical constituency at all levels will readily be obtained. 
Even photographic records may easily be made, and the whole apparatus accurately aimed will return within a reasonable distance at the point of its departure. That quality in itself gives it great advantage over the free balloon system of observation now used. Control of the speed of descent calls for only a simple arrangement of tiny parachutes adding practically nothing to the weight carried. And that's the end of the quote from that Popular Mechanics article. And then the editor of Literary Digest here just finishes up a little bit. Tests of the mechanism so far developed are interesting. Trials of various forms of chamber and nozzle were made, not only in air but in vacuum. The experiments were conducted with a chamber of nickel steel having a tensile strength of 115,000 pounds. The long trumpet-shaped nozzle was made separately and screwed in place, the whole test instrument being less than a foot in length. See, it's tiny, right? Charged with powder, the little rocket in this form was fixed by set screws in the lower end of a vertical two-inch pipe, three and a half feet long, weighted above the rocket with a length of steel bar. To quote further, okay, one more quote from the Popular Mechanics article, As in the explosion the powder gases discharged at the bottom, the recoil was allowed to lift the mass of metal, recording its movement by tracing a pencil point on a chart. Further tests were made by photographing the discharge as it crossed a graduated background. With the figures established by this means as a guide, the repeating mechanism for firing successive charges in relay is now being developed and tested. As regards the charges themselves, they will have to be calculated and graded carefully, since each consecutive one will have a lighter load to propel than the preceding one as the weight of powder dissipates in gas. As already seen in the hypothetical bombardment of the moon, the new apparatus lends itself to speculation. The inventor himself has mentioned, merely as a distant possibility, its use for taking photographs in space, employing light-sensitive cells to actuate the shutter, but there is little need to invent future uses for the equipment, for its power to familiarize science with atmospheric conditions, not only in the remote altitudes, but at all levels, high and low, is sufficiently important to place meteorology upon an entirely new footing. And that's the end of the quote and the end of the article. So that is the article that we have for you today on this very special space exploration Valentine's. <laughs> I mean, I find this just absolutely amazing, right? It's a, It said it was a one-foot-long rocket that they are toying with here in 1920, and yet they have the audacity to imagine that this technology is eventually going to get them to the moon, not only the moon, but maybe even to Mars, it said. And we still have that audacity today. We're a little bit closer to the goal. We're still a long way away from it, but we're a whole lot closer to the goal, and we've seen that last week in the Falcon Heavy launch. That, I mean, it's... What I love so much about this is the feeling, right? Because we can feel it right now at this time in history in 2018. And that's the same feeling that they were feeling in 1920 as they were toying with this one foot long rocket. But it, it, it gives us this connection with those people at that time to know what it felt like to be there in 1920, to imagine, because we're imagining the same thing. So it's, it's that perspective taking, it's that feeling what it was like be in another time and to imagine the same thing. Uh, to me, that, that's, that's just priceless.
That I mean, that's the best Valentine that you could ever give me right there. <laughs> put a little heart on it, put a little rocket inside, and one day I'm going to carry that Valentine into space on one of SpaceX's rockets. <laughs> I'm going to be there. I might be 99 years old, but if it takes that long, I don't care. I'm going to be there one day. <laughs> that's, yeah, that, I mean, to me, uh, there's no substitute for that. Now, the last thing that I want to, you know, finish this out with is, <laughs> you know, that, that, that car that, that Falcon Heavy launched into space, right? The Tesla, as you probably already know, there's a live feed that you can tune into on the internet. It's at SpaceX.com, for example. It's also all over YouTube and it's like, you know, updated constantly. And you can just see with a cam you know, that car just going through space. <laughs> and it, you just, it's, it's so quirky good. It's quirky good is what it is. And the best part is that they put those two arc disks on board to talk to intelligent life as much as 14 billion years in the future. I mean, seriously, they, they sent a valentine to the future or to alien life. Take your pick. Both are equally awesome in my opinion. But the, the one thing, though, the one thing that I have to say that I am a little disappointed with is what they put on those ARC discs. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, Isaac Asimov's Foundation Trilogy is an excellent choice, cherry. But these things are supposed to hold like something like 360 terabytes each. So, I mean, why just put three novels on there? It probably took up all of like 15 megabytes at the most? Something like that? I mean, put a sweet mixtape on there or something, or the entire collection of Star Trek episodes. <laughs> what a waste of space. What, what, the, all of that, what, what are they going to do with all the rest of that space? I mean, <laughs> oh man, such a lost opportunity. I tell you, I tell you what I would have put on there now, if I could somehow do it from here, now at this point, after the launch. I would like to present you with that now. Here is my Valentine to the future. The best and the brightest that humanity has to offer, I give to you now. I give you the YouTube comment section to Elon Musk's Tesla space car live feed. <laughs> you know this is going to be bad, right? You know it's going to be bad. All right. <laughs> Here we go. Fake, fake, fake. Not fake. Look on the Space Channel. Fake. If real, the guy would have been looking around. Guys, the man is a dummy. Lol. Not fake. Mr. Astronaut, if you are in captivity, wink three times. Nice 1980s effects. Green screen CGI stuff. You are all fake. None of you exist. You are all just NPCs in NASA's Matrix. And the, the final comment that I have to leave you with today. This is your Valentine. I'm playing with my cock. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. You knew it was coming. Uh, the best and the brightest, folks. This is what humanity has to offer. Never mind them. They're all a bunch of idiots. What really matters is what we actually did as a species last week. We, I mean, I'm, I'm speechless. So that's it for our episode today. Here's to a lovely Valentine and a future that is awesome. That's all I can say. I'm BT Newberg, and this is Dead Ideas.
10, 9, 8. Side boost ignition. 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Ignition.